Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Bennett Goldstein. Bennett covers agriculture and the environment in the heartland for Wisconsin Watch as part of Report for America. He works on the Mississippi River Basin Agriculture and Water Desk, a collaborative reporting group. He previously reported for newspapers in Iowa and Nebraska. He's a graduate of Washington University of St. Louis, Go Bears, and he has a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin. Hi, Bennett. Hello. Let's start with where we start with every journalist that we interview. What's your journalism origin story? So it was a pretty, it's it's kind of an unremarkable or banal start, but I was basically just going through a bad breakup in grad school. And in order to distract myself from my misery, I joined the school newspaper and I was having more fun writing for the art section of the school paper rather than working on my history master's thesis. So up until that point, I had actually resisted the idea of becoming a news reporter when people had suggested that I do so because I kind of found daily beat reporting and hard news stories a bit boring. And But at a certain point, I discovered long-form narrative journalism, and I sat in a class for that. In, and, and so that was through doing the work and and reading that kind of opened my eyes to this whole other area of journalism that you don't typically see in in daily newspapers and so like the story that always kind of sticks with me final salute by jim sheeler and 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 that really helps me kind of ground my writing in stories and narrative what is final salute it's so he focuses on the designated, I guess, mer- uh, members of the Marines and I think the Army who are assigned to go door to door and notify the families when their loved one has died. And, and so they're like the door knockers. And this was especially, and this occurred right. Around in the first couple of years after the U.S. invaded Iraq. Wow. So you were a psychology major, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell us about your background and if there's anything in your family or heritage that lends itself to storytelling? I can't go through this without talking about my mother. And she she really loves to gossip on the phone. And <laughs> so something that she's always done in my childhood and to this day is she talks about you right in front of your face to someone else when she's at the kitchen table or in our family room. And growing up, I'd always hear her spinning a tale. And sometimes I'd even pick up the receiver and eavesdrop, um, which you could do back in the age of landlines. And, and, And I was also, you know, so I would enjoy listening to her, but I was also myself quite shy. And my mother is kind of the person who forced me to learn how to talk to strangers. So she would drag me out with her when she would go to her own activities like art gallery openings or like we would usher at the opera. And and, and so she would pay me a dollar for every person I go up to and introduce myself to. And so like by the end of the evening, I, I would have made like 10 to 12 introductions. And 
And then if that didn't work, she would just pinch me and tell me to go to people. And, and so I've kind of, to this day, I, I guess I think of as no source as scarier or as large of a force in my life as, as she has been. Wow, oh, that's really cool. The, the, I like the, the, the combination of the gossip and the bribery is, is pretty cool. Yeah. What were the, so what were some of the turning point moments, maybe pinpoint one or two, in your time with other newspapers, and you spent a decent amount of time with a newspaper in Dubuque, Iowa, that led you to where you are right now? So I never went to J school, and that kind of set me up on a very specific trajectory because if you don't go to J school, in a lot of cases, you're not eligible for most newspaper internships. And as a result, I had to go to kind of start at the bottom rung, which which usually entails moving to a really rural location and working at a small newspaper and and getting your training on the job. And so... I was in a town of 11,000 in rural Iowa, and you could run across the whole city in eight minutes, a cornfield on the other side. And, and so I would, there were a lot of these moments of crisis where when I wouldn't be busy working, my anxiety would kind of pick up and I would just always be asking myself, what am I doing here? Why am I in the middle of nowhere? And, and it can be quite isolating when you're doing when you're in these environments especially if you don't have opportunities for mentorship or training and this is where i would offer a plug for report for america which maybe we can talk about in a little sure. bit but go ahead but at the time report for america didn't exist and so um i i do think though that when you are in these environments on the, there are a lot of positives to be had. And, and I think that's where a lot of my experience came from getting to be an editor and the photographer and the page layout designer and our, do video as well. And, and I think also developing a really deep understanding of what it's like to live in a small community and in flyover country really helps you not only be a more person of the world, but have a better sense of of understanding when you're writing about communities and and i i think it's very easy to especially as we're looking at the iowa caucus coverage for instance like it's quite easy to see some of the larger outlets that have engaged in parachute journalism and it, it, when you're living there it, it's it's much easier to avoid making those mistakes now you and I are talking because of a promo that I saw on Report for America's Instagram about the Agriculture and Water Desk. Can you explain the mission of what that group does and what your role in that is? Yeah, so the Mississippi River Basin Ag and Water Desk. In short, we're a group of ten or so reporters, and this desk is an entity that's based at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. And then it's through Report for America and the Society of Environmental Journalists. And essentially, we the group of different newsrooms, which stretches from Minnesota all the way down to Louisiana, uh, we cover, we try to write about news that is relevant to the entire Mississippi River Basin, which is about 31 states and two Canadian provinces. And we focus on writing about agriculture and water and climate change and we're essentially trying to improve the quality of journalism about these subjects. And also our unique plug is that we're 
taking a regional perspective to show the interconnectedness of these different states and of these different issues. So like on a day-to-day -day basis, what that looks like is we are having weekly editorial meetings and we have a Slack channel and we we try to share, we, we multi-bylines or, or write multi-byline so stories and tap into each other's resources. So the Star Tribune in Minneapolis might have a graphics designer who contributes to a story that I'm writing about farm runoff. And the data analysis might come from a newsroom based in Illinois called Investigate Midwest. And so, so there's all of these room, there's all this room for collaboration that can make ultimately a better product. And then all of our stories are published to any newsroom, whoever, wherever, for free. So the, the the structure of this is there's there's writers and then there's the editors are within those those different newsrooms, like those newsrooms too. It could be an editor at the Minneapolis Star Tribune or is the editorial yeah. somewhere. Okay, it is. Yeah, and and the Ag Desk also has its own editors as well, who are through the university. So we it's you'll it's not uncommon to have two or three editors take a pass at your story. Wow, that that's an amazing uh, collaboration. So how do you come up with the story ideas that you do? So I try to use a bottom-up approach. Like I, rather than starting with an environmental issue, like like nitrate phosphorus runoff, rather than saying, oh, I want to write a pollution story, I'll look for a community that I find evidence is being impacted by pollution. And well, and then at least at Wisconsin Watch where I work, we have to, we have a little matrix that we call the 10 command prompts. And <laughs> it, we basically have to ask ourselves for each story, like, will this story plug information or accountability gaps? Will it identify someone who's being harmed and then explore solutions? And will it strengthen democracy and civic discourse? And so all of that kind of goes into the planning of an investigation. Um, that because we are a, a outlet that tends to work for weeks, if not months, on stories. There's a lot of um, front end planning that has to go into it to make sure that we're in making good use of our time. All right, so let's go through a couple of things that that you've written. One that I was looking at was about this guy. He seemed problematic trying to make the state's largest pig farm in Trade Lake, Wisconsin, a town with a population of 900. You did a series of pieces, a series of pieces were done called Hogtide that related to all this. Can you explain the, the story that you did? And I'm curious how you dealt with this guy who seemed like he was pretty hostile to just about everyone in the town. Yeah, so, yeah, so this story, it started with a tip and we envisioned it as a quick turnaround. We had been told that there was this guy, his name is Jeff, and he was coming in with his plan to create what would be Wisconsin's largest pig farm in what essentially is a community that's like 60% people who own second homes and have and, and and a local economy based on tourism and then like another 20 to 30 percent is farming and a farming community that goes back to the early 1800s and so this 
you so you are you already have a dynamic where there's some tension in the community over the role of agriculture and who should decide what agriculture in the community is going to look like and then what as we were learning just asking basic questions we were trying to figure out well the the tip focused on a very specific aspect of this story which was where is all this manure going and it turns out that Jeff had worked with a local farmer and they had come up with a list of all these fields that they're going to put manure on. But a lot of the owners of the fields didn't know that they were going to be getting manure. And so they, and a lot of them were not very happy when they first found out about that. So we thought that would be the story. But as I was even just trying to get an explanation as to what was going on, it, it became really apparent that this was a much more complicated story I mean, it involved two lawsuits, it involved years of meetings, and and this had been going on for five years, so there was a lot to catch up on. And and then, of course, you had this Jeff himself, who as a character was this, as a as you said, kind of, he was a bit of a hostile source. And, and he actually ended up getting his own story because of the way that he represented the industry and was coming in with his venture and so so i think approaching him was very intimidating i mean he has a long record of being disrespectful in the way that he talks about people and he has a very a colorful repertoire of language that he uses when we spoke he accused me of being anti-ag and and opposing farming and and he he flipped the interview around on me and he started grilling me as to what I intended to do and what and provide him essentially like a list of stories that I've written that are that frame agriculture in a positive light. And so we actually ended up quoting some of that in the story itself. But I, I guess I in approaching him, I was there were, we actually had newsroom conversations about this because it was a bit anxiety provoking. And I think it ultimately came down to like what telemarketers have to do where like they always say, just smile and dial. (laughs) And, and so, and, and then also to try to like indulge my curiosity, like, yes, I'm, I find this, this prospect of being yelled at unpleasant and not looking forward to it. But I also try to empathize with him. I mean, he was under a lot of pressure for trying to get this $20 million project cited and he wasn't going to get paid until he did. And the project was delayed for five years and counting and it was rejected twice. And and he's still moving forward with it. But I mean, he's he's personally spent thousands of dollars trying to get this thing off the ground. And so... And so as I collected documents and was going through newspaper clippings, like the material was just too crazy to not turn into something much larger than what what it what it could have been, which was just a quick daily turnaround about people not liking the manure on their on their <laughs> property. How did you deal with the different challenges uh, that you faced in that one? That one was, I think actually the biggest challenge was getting too much material and then not knowing what to do with it all. And I think the biggest way we handled that 
was immediately trying to look for ways that we can partition this into smaller stories because it ultimately turned into four stories. And there was three in the series and then a spinoff that was closely related, but not in the same train, I guess. And so, so we were trying to first look for common themes and, and then just logical breaking points. And I almost started to think of it as a podcast. And we were actually looking at how one of my coworkers made a podcast and, and broke it down into like, oftentimes podcasts like Serial, for instance, will explore a giant theme, break it down into almost weekly lessons and something, an example that illustrates that lesson. And so we thought if we were to take this larger story, find like maybe three things, like the how the hog industry works and the first lawsuit and, and this backdoor land dealings with the local government and the small town politics would be another one. And then the third one was the, all that manure and what's going to happen to it. And, and then we actually made conscious decisions in each story to withhold information in order to make it less, to, in order to reduce the amount of confusion that would happen if we bombarded everyone with, with all the information. And so by partitioning it into like, like meal-sized chunks and then making very, very conscious decisions to, to take out information and not tell the whole story. We are trying to build suspense and include foreshadowing and also at the same time not overwhelm the reader. And so I guess it would have been like the textual equivalent of what a good podcast does. That's interesting. And I've noticed that on your in your different stories on Wisconsin Watch, there is a lot of as you said, chunks. The the stories are very are there are dividers that exp, like that essentially separate the different sections of the story, and it really does seem. It, I didn't want to say that it was dumbed down, but it was definitely simplified in a way that made it a lot easier to read. I want to address a couple other things that you wrote, just to show again to show examples. You did several stories on Wisconsin's water, including the pollution in Lake Superior, whose water is important to the fishing industry for Native American tribe, the, and I hopefully I pronounce this right, Ojibwe. What, what was the backstory to this one, and what was it like to cover? Yeah, so that story also, it came from a workshop, and the, or at least the initial idea of writing a story about Lake Superior and a particular contempt chemical, the group of chemicals known as PFAS, and and how this these chemicals, which you're increasingly seeing media attention focusing on, they're also known as forever chemicals. They and they're they're ever they're in consumer products and also throughout the spread throughout the environment, um, and and. As we were, as I was on this trip, we the the thing we learned is that this tribe called the Red Cliff Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe was testing their fish for this chemical known as or these chemicals known as PFAS, and th that in itself was interesting 
because the tribes, this is a tribe, a, a, a tribal effort to test not only of a source of food that's critical for the tribe that is historically and currently is a major part of the tribe's livelihood and, and is a food source, but also is of cultural significance to the extent that, you know, the, that their ability to, I guess, fulfill the role that the tribe has been endowed with from the creator includes being good stewards of the environment and making sure that they are fishing. And so the fact that these chemicals are getting into this food source is, is not only really alarming for all of those reasons, but it also has political implications because this tribe and the other Ojibwe tribes in Wisconsin have, and in Michigan and Minnesota, have what are known as treaty rights. And it's essentially when the U.S. government was engaging in land grabs in the 1800s with um, the Midwestern uh, Native American uh, peoples, they would take, they would enact treaties, but in, in the case of the Red Cliff, they and other Wisconsin tribes, they retained their rights to hunt, fish, and gather on the land. And but what what's happening is is even though they have and and then the government would take possession of the land. But what's happening now is really, if we're polluting the environment, even if the tribe has rights to use the resources and living creatures on this uh, territory. It, it really calls into question how they can actually ac exercise their sovereignty and rights if there are no resources for them to harvest. And, and so just this intellectual exercise was kind of a way that we decided to frame the story. And so when it came down to it, I, I really wanted to center the story around fishing and I had been in touch with a tribal fisherman, and so I had about less than 24 hours to get my butt up to Lake Superior when the, with the start of fishing season began. And we had no notice. It was just kind of when the weather was nice. And so I drove all night, and there actually was a blizzard when I was going up, and then my engine tire went, pressure yeah. light went on, and and and, and so... I six or seven hours later, I was up there at the docks at 6 a.m. and I forgot to take my Dramamine. And so when we got into the boat and it's about a 50 foot little fish tug and we we're going through the Apostle Islands and then we made our way out to the main shipping channel in the middle of Lake Superior, like the waves got pretty bad. And, and so I had to report the story and simultaneously alternate between asking questions and then running over to the porthole to to puke and then move back and continue reporting and taking photos hey. and so i mean so that was it was a really interesting experience it was a very difficult story to report not just the intellectual and historical issues it went into it but just in terms of my own stomach um, and the hazards of being a journalist wow yeah yeah <laughs> all right
So one other that I wanted to touch on, you write stories uh, about people too. You write about personal experience. In late December 2022, you wrote about LGBTQ farmers in the Midwest and how that challenges the traditional husband and wife on the farm, son inherits its stereotype. You wrote both about different farmers that are LGBTQ, and you wrote about how doing the story changed your perception of being gay and covering what you cover. What was the experience of doing all of this like? Yeah, I, so I had really wanted to write this story for at least five or so years. And I was finally at, when I got my current position, was able to write the story in a way that I know I would be able to and the way that I wanted with the the honesty and the descriptiveness and also the length that this story would um, ultimately become. And I think it was really... I mean, it was meaningful on one hand to see how LGBTQ people have adapted to rural living and to see where all of their perspectives differed and, and how they adapted to the challenges that come from living in rural, in this case, I focused on Iowa and Illinois and Wisconsin and the isolation and discrimination that can come from being in areas of the country that may have less opportunities for LGBTQ people to gather and to showcase their visibility. And so that leads to a whole other set of issues. And so it, it was, but ultimately we really wanted to frame this uh, again, much like the, the Redcliffe story of people adapting to challenges and finding ways to cope with them. And and we we were able to do so. And, and actually this is a little meta, but like the process of that reporting even forced us as a newsroom to confront our own style policies when it came to pronouns, because we really wanted to be sensitive. And so with this story in particular, one of the sources I interviewed uses more than one gender pronoun interchangeably. And if you the AP style guide doesn't have an entry on this, of course, but like you other than use the pronoun that the person prefers. But when it comes to more than one pronoun, there are no entries at the time of reporting in the style guide that address this issue. And so we were initially like, well, can this source pick a pronoun? And no, like, how can you ask someone to restrict part of their identity just to adapt to some journalistic norm. And, and, and then of course there's the irony with that because the whole point of the article was about how LGBTQ people see the world differently, think of new possibilities and come up with creative solutions. So we, after wrestling with this issue, which really shouldn't have been an issue, we, we changed our policies so that we will use all pronouns that a person wants and and if however whatever it takes to do that to make sure it's clear to the reader then then we'll do this and it, i mean it, and, and so i think it was a lesson about the lgbt community in reading the article but also in in putting it together and what about the, the personal experience aspect of the story yeah i mean it was really liberating i mean because i had always when i moved to iowa it, it was certainly a struggle and, and there'd be moments where, of course, and I'd having these 
question, questioning my decision to become a reporter and, and is, if this is what it takes, if I have to be in a, a tiny community, is it worth it? And I mean, it actually was really powerful to see how other people had found acceptance in community and we could almost trade experiences. I mean, in, in reporting that I'd never actually had, they, they say that a good interview should be a conversation, but usually that conversation is about the source. And in this case, it was like actually a conversation where I'm talking about myself just as much as the sources. And so that level of intimacy and dialogue that had come through the reporting was, was a first for me. And, and I, I, I would imagine that for a lot of people that I would answer almost every question that they were asking or that I was asking to my sources that they would know my own answer as well. And it, and so after going through that and talking about it, we, that's why we actually thought I should write a first person essay at the end of, of reporting that. All of the links for these will be uh, included in the show notes. It sounds to me like there's, you mentioned at the very beginning, collaboration being an important theme in this. And you mentioned too at the beginning, a report for America's impact. How has Report for America been helpful to you? So Report for America just, it's a program attempting to fill in gaps in in the industry where we have news deserts. There are not only locations of the country that don't get coverage, but also different types of reporting don't get coverage, like science and the environment and health. And so the the premise being that they're going to help newsrooms fund positions that will rectify some of these barriers that we're facing in the industry. And and then what's great is that a lot of the reporters are new to the profession. And so they're getting mentorship through the Report for America staff, through their peers, and also through the they're assigned a professional journalist who my mentor works at Bloomberg. I mean, it's it's just really, the opportunities are really fabulous. And you, we also have almost weekly webinars and on all sorts of journalistic topics related. How, I think an upcoming one is how to interview a hostile source. And <laughs> another one, yeah, yeah. I mean, you it, can it, talk about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So- so with that, what are some of the other journalism issues that you're most passionate about? Oh, gosh. I get really hot and bothered over student press freedom. When it comes to like high school newspapers getting shut down either by school superintendents or school boards after a parent complains because they wrote something for LGBTQ pride or, I mean, that's like the quintessential example of what just blows my mind. And how there aren't legal protections in a lot of states for students to be able to exercise their press freedoms, that that a paper can actually be shut down in in some places just boggles my mind. uh, Being a journalist in those instances is certainly can be very stressful. Uh, I imagine that being a journalist uh, and working on some of the stuff that you're working on can be stressful at times. And we've been asking journalists uh, that we've had on, how do do you manage your mental health? 
well, take your medication as prescribed. Um, uh, but also, I, I mean, I would say exercise is always good. But for me, like actually working is in the way that I cope with the stress of working in the sense that the structure of a deadline and the routine and it provides a sense of momentum that at least enables me as a working reporter to keep going and 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 then and 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 kind of attacking the issues head on for me helps me just work through them and and then especially when it becomes a labor of love and so finding stories that you want to report especially lighthearted ones actually i find is a great balance to some of the especially in environmental reporting which i i kind What's of What's a good lighthearted like, one you've done? Yeah, well okay so this isn't so this is before i became before i became an environmental reporter the story i actually find myself thinking about most often is a group of gossipy women who water walked at the the local swimming pool every summer for each week they would get together and they and it was just a gaggle and they would make laps and chat 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 and and so I got in the pool with them with a waterproof notebook and just followed them and wrote down everything they said and then I got to interview the lifeguards who had nicknames for each woman. Like there was glamour and gloss and fancy and like, and it was just such a really fun, like story of a life that I think I try to, I try to find those even it's harder in environmental reporting, but if you can find fun environmental stories, I, I, I think that can really keep the job it can add some needed levity i love that we started with a gossipy woman and we're going to end with a gossipy woman the show is called the journalism salute we salute you for your good work and we ask that you do likewise is there a journalist or journalism organization besides report for america that you would like to salute for their good work yeah the tampa bay times and in particular my journalism hero, Lane DeGregory. She's a feature writer there. And she also has the podcast, Right Lane. And, and in listening to that and in talking with her, she it's essentially she gives lessons in craft. And, and, and she really taught me, at least in my work, how to look for and notice the important details that really brings reporting to life. And so she's always sharing these really interesting insights by breaking down her stories and and sharing the story behind the story. So I, I would highly recommend listening to that. Yeah, for sure. She was uh, recommended by one other person uh, among our 150 interviews as well. That was how I found out about her. And I was very intrigued by some of the articles that she has written. Bennett Goldstein, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. We will certainly be following your work. Thank you. We hope you're inspired by this episode and others we've done recently to learn more about Report for America. Report for America is a national service program that places journalists into local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues and communities. If you're interested, I recommend visiting their website at reportforamerica.org. They are currently accepting applications to be part of their next reporter class through January 31st. 
Again, for more information, visit their website at reportforamerica.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.